could turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And we'll start right at the very beginning of that chapter. As you turn there, let me um, ask you, what was the great, the last great epic movie that you saw, that you've seen? You don't have to answer that out loud. Um, I really enjoyed Dune. Maybe you watched it. I'm not necessarily recommending it because it might not be your cup of tea or your cup of sand. Um, but Dune uh, is an epic movie, and I haven't read the book, so the first movie ended, and I, didn't, I, don't, I still don't know what is to come. All right? But in the movie Dune, I won't really give any spoilers. There's a main character, and this main character is the prince, and he gets the blessing from his father, and then through a series of circumstances is sent out into the wilderness. And we'll see what happens next. Hopefully you're in Luke chapter 4 this morning because in Luke chapter 4 we're going to encounter one episode of an epic story. And this episode itself is a cosmic confrontation. Something beyond any of our experiences. It is Christ and the devil. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, this morning, as we, as we hear your story, Jesus, that you experienced yourself, that through the inspiration of your spirit has been recorded for us to read, we pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us this morning and that you would guide us, Lord, in understanding how your story truly affects our story. Thank you for being here with us and promising us that uh, you will work in our hearts. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So are you in Luke chapter 4? This morning, as we go through this epic episode, I also want us, you're going to hear a few different stories, starting with this story, but you're going to see how it's connected to some other stories, as I just inferred from my prayer. So, let's start with this story. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, first of all, I know this is a very familiar story to many of us. So familiar that it can be easy to pass over. I know this. I've heard this. I've even heard this applied before. I'm trusting that the Spirit will give us fresh eyes this morning. What is the setting here of this story? Well, the setting here is the wilderness. Jesus has just been baptized at the Jordan by John the baptizer. And then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Which leads us to who the characters are here. Well, first of all, there's Jesus. And as Bill preached last week, and we've seen in the first three chapters of Luke, he is unabashedly the Son of God. That is the identity that the reader is supposed to understand at the beginning of Luke. Jesus is the Son of God. We have the Holy Spirit, who not only has now led Jesus into the wilderness, but Jesus is also full of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the devil, diabolos in the Greek. Luke uses a term, this term for the devil, seven times in Luke and Acts. He also uses the Hebrew term satanas or Satan, deceiver, at other times. There's a lot of the devil and Satan who are the same person throughout Luke and Acts. Here, we find out that the devil is tempting Jesus. Being tempted by the devil. The devil is the deceiver, the supreme enemy of God, and you could, with a capital T, call him the tempter. 
So we have the setting, we have the characters, and there is a rising action in this story. There's a rising action. Let me continue to read here. And Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So the Holy Spirit has led Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, into the wilderness. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, but he is full of nothing else. He has eaten nothing for these 40 days. And while we are about to read three specific temptations that the the devil tempts Jesus with, the participle here, being tempted by the devil, helps us to understand that Jesus was continually tempted during these 40 days. This was an epic episode. And it reaches this point of climax. The rising action to the climax. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Temptation 1. Temptation 2. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Temptation 3. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In this climactic instance of this epic episode, I want you to see this. These three temptations are specific in their aim. The devil tempts Jesus to doubt that he is the Son of God. Three times he makes this clear. Though one time you don't see it in the text. Number one, the first, command this stone to become bread. Doubt the Father's provision, Jesus. You're now God become man, the supposed Son of God, yet you've been without bread for 40 days. Does the Father truly love you, Son of God? Use your power to turn the stone into bread. Doubt the Father's provision. Second of all, takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Son of God, doubt the Father's promise. The inference here is that as the Son of God, the Father God will give Jesus all authority, all kingdoms. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father had already promised all authority and glory and the nations to Jesus. And Satan was saying, Son of God, doubt the Father's promise. Doubt his crown. 
given to you. Then verses 9 through 11, where he takes him up to the top of the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the temple, and says, Throw yourself down if you are the Son of God. Doubt the Father's plan. Jesus knew there would be a way that he would be exalted, that he would garner the attention of all those who watched, but it wasn't by going to the top of the temple. And it wasn't ultimately going to result in his being protected from death. But he would be protected at the resurrection. Son of God, doubt the Father's plan. Do you really want to go to the cross? I can give you a crown without the cross. In summary, what the devil is trying to do to Jesus is to doubt the Father's love for him. To doubt his position of sonship. But that wasn't all that was involved in this climax. There was Jesus' resistance. He responds to the devil with confidence in God's word. You may have heard this taught before where the teacher breaks it down and saying, if you use the word of God this way, you will defeat temptation. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not exactly what Jesus is doing in here. He is using the Word of God, but there's something deeper that he's doing. He's using the Word of God because he is confident about what the Father has already said about him. Look back in chapter 3, verse 22. At his baptism, what has the Father just said? You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So though the wilderness is empty, the wilderness has scorched him, and temptation seems to have overwhelmed him, he is confident in the Father's love for him, and thereby trusts that the Father's words are true about him and in response to these temptations. See, temptation is personal. Temptation is personal. We don't all experience the same recipe. Jesus didn't experience the same recipe either. But resisting temptation is personal too. Put this way, it is about his and our personal trust in the Father himself. So Jesus responds, though I'm hungry... My Father has provided His Word. I trust Him, and I will wait on Him to eat. Though I'm humbled, my Father has promised me the nations, my crown. I trust Him, and I will worship Him alone. Though you are tempting me, devil, my Father is testing my faithfulness. I trust his plan, and I will not test his faithfulness. And we come to a point of asking, is there deliverance? Absolutely. Jesus, the beloved son, endures the tempter. And the father remains well pleased with him. Well, this epic episode in the Wilderness is supposed to point us to another story. This being Moses' story as leader of Israel. So let me set up that setting. Deuteronomy 8. The people of Israel have been wandering for 40 years. And they're on the banks of the Jordan about ready to enter the promised land. The characters in this story, there's Moses, the, leaders of, the leader of God's people. He led them out of Egypt and right now, there are only three guys left that are still alive from that original generation. Him, Joshua, and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb are the surviving spies from the original 12 that went into Canaan 40 years earlier and said, ah, don't think we can do it. The other 10 said that. 
Joshua and Caleb said, absolutely, the Father can do it. Israel is sent into the wilderness of 40 years as discipline. And only those two guys and Moses are still alive. The other character, it's Israel. God's people, like I said, have wandered in the wilderness now for 40 years. Third character would be the Holy Spirit. In Nehemiah 9.20, in recounting the wandering of Israel, Nehemiah says, The Lord gave them His good spirit to instruct them. Just as Jesus was not alone in the wilderness, Israel was not alone in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit was with them. There's rising action here in this story. In Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10, just listen to this. Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That, put your ears on, he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make known, make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So, you shall keep his commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Remember, they're on the, the banks of the Jordan about to enter the promised land here. And the question as this rising action mounts is, will Israel the son trust his father's provision, promise, and plan? Or will Israel the son succumb to the temptations of their flesh, the world, and the devil, even when they are in the promised land. The climax comes the next chapter, chapter 9, 6 through 25, but it's actually a climax that happened in the past. Because if you remember the account of the golden calf that happened just after Israel had left Egypt, Moses actually refers back to that incident as a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of what is to come. Moses was not hopeful that Israel would continue to obey, that they would trust the Father. In fact, he recounts, looking back 40 years earlier, he tells them, I was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, and I was in God's presence, and I did not eat or drink for 40 days. The Lord had satisfied him in his presence. Meanwhile, down on the plain, the people are like, where is this guy Moses who supposedly brought us out of Egypt? Aaron, make us a golden calf. And he fashioned the golden calf and they worshipped the calf as having led them out of Egypt. And when Moses comes down, God is ready to smite them, to end this generation. And what does Moses do? Moses intercedes for them in the midst of them 
He says, I laid prostrate for 40 days, again without food, interceding for the people that the Lord would not judge them. He's warning the people as they're about to go into the Jordan, you need to be aware of your heart condition. Your fathers knew the Red Sea, yet they fell away. You have seen God's provision over 40 years, yet the temptation is real. And he says in Deuteronomy 9.25, to summarize his understanding of the people that he was trying to lead, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Deliverance after this climax Israel entered the promised land, but ultimately became just like their idolatrous neighbors. Idolatrous neighbors. Moses failed to deliver Israel from temptation, and in fact, he himself struck the rock. The rock that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us was actually Christ. He struck the rock for water instead of trusting his father. And Moses himself failed to enter the promised land. This takes us back to a story even further back. That was Israel's story. What is humanity's story? Libby read it for us earlier. The setting is Eden. There's no sin. There's no temptation. There's no flesh. But there is a devil. The characters, you have God, the perfect creator and father to Adam and Eve, this sinless couple. Imagine life with no temptation. Imagine life with no brokenness, no understanding of what sin is like, and a life that walks in perfect communion with God. This was Adam and Eve's existence. Yet in chapter 3, Satan, the serpent, the tempter, shows up. And in this rising action in chapter 2, leading to chapter 3, Eve is created out of Adam. But when did God give the commandment for not eating from the tree? Before Eve was created. It was Adam's responsibility to lead who he had been given to lead, his wife. It was his responsibility to instruct her in this single way of the Lord. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we will die. Will Adam obediently lead what the Father, who the Father has given him, Eve and all of creation? Will Adam and Eve trust their Father's provision, promise, and plan? Or will they succumb to the tempter, doubt their father, disobey, and die? The climax is in Genesis 3.6. Listen. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The first temptation that her flesh was seeking, she had already been tempted by Satan himself. But her flesh saw, her eyes saw, this is good for food. She began to doubt the father's provision though his word was their true food. And he had filled them with food, real food, from every tree. She doubted his provision. She saw that this fruit was a delight to the eyes. She began to doubt the Father's promise, though he was the true delight to their eyes, and they truly did see God. And he had given them all of creation to rule with him. She began to doubt the Father's promise of his love to them. And then she saw that this fruit was also to be desired to make them wise. 
she began to doubt the Father's plan, though He was true wisdom with them. And had already given them the specific wisdom of don't eat from the tree or you'll die. She took from it and she ate. There is no hint of resistance. Eve was deceived by the tempter's twisting of her father's words and she ate. Will there be deliverance? Adam failed to deliver Eve from temptation. Adam, who was with her, stood idly by and also ate. He failed to deliver himself from temptation. And at the fall, Satan prevails. The flesh of every human ever created is corrupted, and the world breaks, and rebellion ensues against its creator. Temptation runs rampant, and Adam failed to deliver us from temptation. Do you feel that? The heavy, inescapable, sickening, debilitating, claustrophobic, crippling reality of temptation. Temptation, as John Owen says, is anything, anything that conspires against us. To prompt disobedience to God. Who are the main three minstrels in this? Playing the tune of temptation for our hearts to dance to in sin? It's our own flesh, it's the world, and it's the devil. All three conspiring to allure us to sin, allowing evil into our hearts or drawing evil out of our hearts. Thomas Watson said this, Satan never sets a dish before men that they do not love. From Adam on, the, sins of seed, the, the seeds of sin are in each of us. This morning, this is not a full um, description or sermon navigating all the ins and outs of temptation, either what it is or how it can be resisted. But there are a couple of things that need to be made clear before we move to some better news, some good news for the tempted. One is to say this, temptation is not sin. Oftentimes it really feels like sin because it is so close, so strangling, so hard to discern, and so it can be difficult to know the difference. But temptation is not sin. And number two, temptation is a test. It tests our trust in our Father. Again, John Owen in his classic On Temptation says this, and I'll just give you a minute to pause. Because right now, I hope that you're wrestling with the reality that temptation falls under the sovereignty of God. To which the response would be, if we believe that God is sovereign, the answer has to be absolutely. Does God then tempt us? The book of James would say, no, God does not tempt us. 
But John Owen, Owen is helpful. He says this, It is true, God tempts none. As temptation formally leads, formally leads to sin. So he's saying this, temptation often leads to sin. So you can't put God at the head of the temptation conveyor belt. However, he does order temptation. He does not tempt, but he orders temptation. But there's some distinction here that is good to hear. Through temptation, God tests faithfulness. We see that in the story of Christ. He tests faithfulness, desiring success. Satan, when he tempts, seeks failure. Stephen Charnock says, In temptation, the goodness of God makes the... Did you hear that? In temptation, the goodness of God makes the devil a polisher. We being the pearls. While Satan, the devil, intends to be a destroyer. To smash the pearls. How did you experience temptation this last week? How have you experienced it this morning? What's the recipe that your flesh, the world, and the devil conspire to mix? What's the tune that you desire to dance to? There aren't a whole lot of sermons where you feel like from the start, every single person in the congregation should be saying, amen, let me hear more good news. You might be saying, I haven't heard much good news yet. You will. But the reality is we are all the tempted. We are all the tempted. Let's move to some good news. There's another setting that I want you to think about. Not Eden. Eden is gone. Eden will never return. I want you to think about a new setting, the new creation. To which you might automatically think, but that's a long way off, Andy. We don't know how long it is, but that's actually not the new creation that I'm pointing you to. And I don't think it's the new creation that Luke is pointing us to, or Jesus for that matter. We often think of the new creation as the not yet instead of the already well, the thing is, in Luke 3 and 4, we, got, we get to see the already. See, here's the thing. Jesus, the greater Moses, who endured... Jesus, the greater Moses, who endured temptation for 40 days and nights, who eternally prays for his people and perfectly leads a new Israel, is alive. He's the one who despite our sin, victoriously intercedes for us as Moses lay prostrate interceding for Israel. We also see the character of Jesus, the second Adam, who perfectly leads his bride, the church, ultimately delivering this new creation, Eve, from her temptation. He has defeated the tempter and is preparing a greater than Eden city for us. Where is the rising action? Look back at Luke chapter 3. Last week, I love the way that Bill ended the sermon. The fact that Christ came down to identify with us the better son. Indicating that we need a better baptism. 
The Holy Spirit giving us new life in Christ. And I want to return to that baptism and understand it as the initiation of the new creation. See, John the baptizer has already been telling the people, repent, repent. The axe is at the base of the trees. There is judgment coming. By the way, this is a snapshot of what is still to come for us. There will be judgment upon the earth until the not yet new creation is established in its full. Here we get a snapshot from John. Judgment is coming. The axe is at the trees. The chaff is going to be burned. We see here at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit hovering over the waters as He did in Genesis 1. Who then emerges from this new creation, the new creation waters? Not another Adam. Not a lesser Adam, I should say, but the Son of God, the second Adam. Not just made in the image of God, but the very image of God. Arising out of the water. And what does the Father, who had counted all of creation as very good, what are his first words over his better son? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Behold, he is very good. And so, if this is the initiation of the new creation... We then move towards the end of chapter 3. And the genealogy is put right there. And we see, first of all, as Luke is working his way backwards in history, Israel. The genealogy of Christ seen in Israel. And we already, we've already heard that Jesus is the greater Moses for this new Israel. And then it continues further back, going all the way to the first Adam. Then, we should be expecting, if this is talking about new creation stuff, and that not only Israel, but all of humanity are wrapped up in the reality of this new creation, we should expect, as it was in Genesis 3, the narrative to continue into temptation. And that's where we come to in Luke 4. As the Lord had put Adam in Eden, as he had put Moses in Egypt, he now puts Jesus in the wilderness. Yet here's the climax of this rising new creation initiation. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He was not tempted inwardly by his flesh because he is and continues to be perfect. Yet he was tempted in every way to which we as people who succumb to temptation so easily wonder how he... How could he have really felt the fire? How could he have really felt the confusion? How could he have really felt the intensity of what it means to have sinful flesh? The answer to that being, he did not feel what it's like to have sinful flesh, but he endured temptation in a way that you and I never have. Because the fullness of Satan's wrath the fullness of Satan's desire to put an end to God's plan was carried out on Christ for 40 days. And just as it would be pretty easy for a Mack truck to force me to jump off of a cliff if it was coming towards me, because I knew I would be smashed either way, Jesus experienced the fullness of temptation by resisting that Mack truck. He felt it more fully, more strongly, more desperately than we ever will because he fought it. Not only did he fight it, he defeated it. 
Therefore, there is deliverance of a new creation people. At the cross, Jesus does what Adam and Moses failed to do. He delivers those whom the Father has given to him, and he leads them now in resistance to temptation. A new people flying under the banner of belongs to Christ. In Christ, the perfect one who has defeated the devil and the world and the flesh. Yet this was an epic episode. The dot, dot, dot continuation is still to come. And we'll talk more about that in Luke as we get to those portions in the next few months, Lord willing. But I want you to hear this. The devil waited until an opportune time. End of verse 13. He waited until an opportune time, until all the forces of temptation would be marshaled against Christ through others. In Luke 22, it makes it clear that the devil was behind both Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. And then in the garden, as Jesus is sweating drops of blood, what does he pray? Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What was the excruciating temptation, the Mack truck that was bearing down on him the night before his death? Again, more than we could ever imagine. But Father, I submit to you, not my will, but yours be done. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. He goes to the cross, and as he is gathering a new creation people made clear back in chapter 4, because he goes out in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went about him throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And we see the pulsing of this new creation going out into the surrounding area. We see that pulsing continue into the book of Acts as the Spirit comes down and creates the church, the new Israel, the new Eve, and they go out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God's kingdom is coming to earth and it is spreading from shore to shore. All glory to his name. And we see that happening in Luke. We see that happening even at the cross as two criminals are on either side of him, both initially scoffing, yet one says, why are we scoffing? This man hasn't done anything wrong. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The new creation is coming, my son. You have been beaten and battered by temptation all your life. And knowing this man perfectly would know that he rarely, rarely survived. Yet on that cross, he says, I'm going to paradise and I'm taking you with me. Which brings us to Christ's story for our stories. Our setting is the wilderness. As you know, this certainly isn't Eden. The constant barrage of temptation in our lives confirms it. The reality of Jesus' defeating, resisting temptation in Luke 4, the fact that he then went to the cross, the perfect Son of God, our righteousness, leads to Romans chapter 6, verse 17, 517. Listen to this. For if because of one man's trespass, that being the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the greater Adam. The reality is everyone ever since Adam is either in Adam, we all are in Adam, we're in Adam, but by the grace of Christ, we can become in Christ. There are two heads of every single human, two groups, 
to people, either in Adam or in Christ. We're all born here, but by God's grace, some are born again into here. If you are not in Christ, if you are still in Adam, know that you actually have no real power to resist temptation. Just as Adam failed, you will continue to fail. And the wrath of God remains on you even in your failure. Why? Because you refuse to, re to entrust your soul to the perfect second Adam who has made a way for you to be forgiven, redeemed, justified, made new. That's his invitation. Not to just come in as a five-year-old and to pray, Jesus, forgive my sins, but to, that's part of it, praise be to God. But the reality is his invitation is into new life. Into walking with the new Adam. Experience new creation before the grave and eternally after the grave. This is good news. Welcomed into union with God. Yet if we reject that good news, if we reject entrusting our soul to the perfect second Adam who endured temptation and who wants to give us this free gift of his perfection in life, we will not experience him. The good news is that even today, those who are still in Adam can repent and trust Christ the greater Adam and experience new life today. Brothers and sisters, if you have been born again, you and I now have new postures towards temptation. New postures towards temptation. I want to encourage you to think about a few things. We are now in the rising action of sonship. What it looks like to walk as a child of God, following our victorious Christ. What does that look like? Well, it's basics. It looks like continuing to repent and believe, but I want to apply those in some specific ways regarding temptation. What I'm not going to tell you is five ways to defeat temptation today. There are great books that you can read about that. I would recommend John Owen's On Temptation. I would recommend um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, the author of which flees my mind right now. However, both of those books, when you read them, you will understand there is a necessary starting point before you move into the what-to-dos. And that starting point is our position in Christ. If we need to repent about how we are understanding temptation, I want, first of all, for you to change your mind. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your mind regarding your position. You are in the second Adam, brother and sister. You are justified. You are fully forgiven. If Christ's death could not accomplish that, Christ's death could accomplish nothing. And, when you are tempted, brother and sister, at the core, what you are being tempted with is the same as Christ was. You are being tempted to doubt the Father's love for you, to doubt his provision, his promise, and his plan. Hear this. Jesus' sonship was deliberately attacked, though wrapped in other diabolical schemes. And it is the same for us. Temptations encourage us to doubt the reality that God has made us sons of God, and so we are. So in reality, we run back and we try to hide ourselves with our fig leaves, not able to discern between temptation and sin. We hide in shame our, the dark thoughts of God flooding our minds and our hearts, when in reality God is saying, in Christ, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Can you say that about yourself this morning? Can you say, insert your first name, I, comma, Andy, 
I am his beloved son, and he is well pleased with me. Regardless of the dastardly recipe of temptation that you have drunk this week, you are his beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased. Regardless of the minstrel tune that you've danced to this week, and all truth being told, you'll probably dance to this afternoon. You are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Because in Christ, this is absolutely, eternally true of you. This is the reality of our position in Christ. If you don't believe it, repent of it. And again, place your faith in Christ. Number two, I want to say repent, change your mind, ask the Spirit to change your mind regarding temptation. God does lead us into temptation with vastly different purposes from the devil than we, like we talked about before. The devil seeks to destroy, the Father seeks to establish. Testing is intended to refine, expose, distrust, and unbelief in us and to grow trust in the only trustworthy one. I was walking this morning, my dog, and there were some woodpeckers that were knock, 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 knocking on the trees in Lakewood Balmoral. The devil's a woodpecker. A malevolent woodpecker, but a woodpecker nonetheless. Who comes and finds places in our hearts that are still holding on to the rottenness of our sin. And the bugs there are rampant. And the Father in His goodness sends the tempter, sends the malevolent woodpecker to put itself on those branches and knock, 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 knock. And we may feel the pain on the outside. And we may feel the bugs scrambling on the inside. But ultimately, God our Father is using those things to sanctify us. John 15, the Father's the gardener. We are the branches on the vine of Christ. The Father prunes. The knife that he uses to prune can be the tempter himself. Not that he's pruning us, seeking that we would fail as the tempter is seeking to destroy, but that we would be healed. That the evil that still resides in us, even in Christ, would be exposed and healed, and we would become more and more like Christ. In the fog of the war with temptation that we all experience, it can be easy to think that the sin to which you are drawn is your biggest problem. Think of your recipe Think of the minstrel song, how do you dance, how do you drink, what does that look like in your life? You may think that the dancing and the drinking are your biggest problems. They're not. Those sins that you know well and Christ knows perfectly, as monstrous and strong and diabolical as they may seem to be, and you must count yourself dead to them in Christ, they are no longer your master Hmm, but you still feel temptation raging. The fog of war on all three fronts. How do we deal with this? Hear this. In the experience of temptation, your biggest problem, your greatest danger is not those sins, but the sin of unbelief. That the Father does not truly love you. That Jesus has not really died for this sin. He has not truly welcomed me under his war banner of new creation, temptation, 
resistance force. That the Holy Spirit does not really feel you, fill you if you don't feel Him. And that the Father hasn't really promised a way out of every testing as He does in 1 Corinthians 10. That is the true test, my brothers and sisters. Christ, our champion, goes before us, victorious and strong, singing resistance songs of good news over us all the time. Will we believe Him? Will we come to Him in our time of need, knowing that He has experienced the fullness of the recipe, the fullness of the song, yet did not drink and did not dance. But He knows how they make you want to dance and to drink. Will we come to Him in our time of need, The Father knows that He has given us the Holy Spirit. And in Luke 11, after Jesus says, pray that you're not led into temptation, He finishes that by saying, the Father will give generously the Holy Spirit to all who ask Him. When you're in the fog of temptation, cry out to Jesus and let His Spirit fill you again. Like Christ, let him fill you with his Holy Spirit, who we are full of, but whom he can further fill us with. And experience the blessing of of obedience to God as we respond rightly to temptation. Walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, Romans 8. In Luke 22, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I pray that your faith will not fail when you are tempted. He looks at his disciples in the garden as he's enduring temptation, and he says, pray that you won't fall asleep and enter into temptation. God, wake us up. When we are tempted, ask God, how are you forming me? How are you seeking to heal me? I am weak. Lead me not into temptation. But if you take me to the valley of the shadow of death, fill me with your spirit because without it, without him, I will fail. Lastly, change your mind regarding temptation. Are we in the wilderness? Yes, we are. But the promised land is coming. And we are victorious in Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, wary of the wiles of Satan. This is not ultimately about how to resist temptation, but about who has resisted it and welcomes us into his victorious resistance. And with this I leave for you to think on. Temptation becomes a different thing when you are justified in Christ. Christ being God was unable to sin. Yet he experienced the pressure of temptation more than any of us ever will. Christ will hold his people fast. And lastly, just as much as Christ was unable to sin, you are unable to be condemned for your sin. You are in Christ. Imperfect, but in the perfect one. You are not condemned, brother and sister. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let's fight. Jesus, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon your people. Remind us of who we are in you. Thank you for conquering 
the world, the devil. Thank you that you are at work in our flesh, sanctifying us. Please lead us not into temptation, but when you do, please fill us with your spirit and grant us new, full, joyous faith in Christ our champion.